Well, we have a particular treat in, in store for us this morning in the person of Michael Rush. Michael Rush will be bringing, ministering the word to us today. So everyone point your hand toward Michael. We say, Father, we place a demand on the gifting and the authority that you have placed in his life. We declare that we will receive from him. And as we receive, God, you will pour in more and cause this gifting to grow. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you for it. Amen. 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 All right. Good morning. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been trying really hard in our household to shift our schedule earlier uh, in, in advance of the, uh, in light of the fact that the school year is starting. And there's been a lot of false starts. There's been a lot of days that the alarm has gone off and we've shut it off and <laughs> stayed right on that same schedule. But this morning, for the first time, we got up with the alarm. And in fact, it was so miraculous that we reached a point, as you know, a lot of you probably noticed that we have a little bit of a struggle sometimes getting to church on time. And so, um, you know, not only were we here on time, but we were like, we could make it to pre-service prayer this morning. And so, and so we came to prayer, and let me tell you, if you aren't going to pre-service prayer, you need to start going to pre-service prayer. I hadn't been there in a long time, but it is no joke. It is no joke. It's really good. And um, while I was there, um, you know, God uh, just sort of gave me this, this thing, and I was going to share it there, but it kind of felt like God said it's really for, uh, it's for more than just the people who were in the room at the time. And that is that, so what he said was, um, You've heard the voice of the mocker say, physician, heal thyself. And you've heard the voice of the accuser say that if you, you know, you're going and you're telling all these people that God has power and signs and wonders and miracles and healings, but yet you have pain in your body and you have unanswered prayers and you have all these things. And God has said some people have heard the voice of the mocker and they have lost all faith. And they've completely given up believing for those things. He said some people have heard those voices and they have given up believing for themselves, but they've retained the ability to believe for others. And he said, but you, and he wasn't speaking to me, he was speaking to us. He said, but you have retained faith for others and you have retained faith for yourselves. And so even in the areas where you pray over and over and over again for healing for yourself and it isn't coming forth, you are continuing to do it. And he said, and, some, and you've noticed this pattern at times and you've been perplexed by it, but he says there is a reason why this happens. And he said, I'm going to give a revelation as to why this happens. And he said, because you have remained faithful for others and remained faithful to believe for yourselves, I can see that I can trust you with this revelation and I'm going to give it to you. Now, he didn't give it to me in that moment, so it hasn't come yet, but I'm believing that God is going to give us the revelation of this and that there is going to be a breakthrough in this area because that's what God said. So thank you, God, for that. Okay, one other thing before I get started. So a couple weeks ago, um, you all commissioned me to go to Washington, D.C. for the Childhood Cancer Data Initiative, and I wanted to give a, a little testimony about what happened there. And so um, it was really good. So um, for a little bit of background, this is all about how we can share data to advance pediatric cancer research. And the reason is that pediatric cancer is a rare disease, and so often scientists can't see the patterns if they're just looking at 
the people who are in their hospital, they have to look across multiple hospitals before the patterns will emerge. And, um, and so St. Jude uh, generates and shares a lot of data. Um, in fact, if you look at pediatric cancer and specifically genomics or DNA sequencing data, about half of the publicly available data comes from St. Jude alone. And um, there's, uh, you know, as sort of the field has gone on, there's been another group that has emerged that a lot of the other data has sort of been, um, you know, uh, shared through the site that they manage. It's called Kids First. And so there are these two groups, but there's some history between the person who leads Kids First and uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and it hasn't been good history. And so, um, uh, you know, going into this conference, I kept seeing this image of a hatchet. And I understood that to be the concept of burying the hatchet. And that, you know, um, you know, I had hope, but I didn't really, I can't say that I was believing, because I didn't really have a word from God. I just had this image that, that maybe this hatchet could be buried. And I never, he never gave me anything to say to anybody. He never gave me anything to do. Like I said, I wasn't praying in faith for something because he hadn't given me that. But on, at the end of the last day of the conference, I was meeting with the person who's sort of my equivalent at the Kids First Project. And we were trying to figure out something we could do to work together, but it's kind of hard because we're not the leaders and there's only so much you can do if you're not the leaders. And while we were there, my boss and her boss came up and they said, we're going to collaborate. And these are the two people that had been at the core of this bad blood. And somehow I didn't say anything. I, I didn't do anything. I didn't push any agenda. But God did something in the background, and the two of them came together. And now we're working on this collaboration. So that was just amazing. It was, it was one of those things where it's like there's what I had faith for, and then there's just what God did, which completely blew it away. So that's my testimony from the conference. So thank you for, uh, for praying for us there. Okay, so um, what I want to talk about today is going to tie in with a lot of things that have been spoken this morning and have been spoken in the past. And, um, and I, I want to first kind of seed you with this question. And so, and we're going to come back to this at the very end. And the question is this. If something were to happen, and we're going to say this is something good, so there was an opportunity, God did something, this isn't something tragic, but something were to happen and you were to leave CityGate, or if this is not your church home, think about your church home. So something good was to happen. There's something that God did. It was an opportunity, positive, not someone dying or falling out. But just something good happened and, and, you, and you left. Um, what would be the impact to this body if you left? And I want you to think about that for a second. So just think about that answer and hold that in your mind because we're going to come back to that in the end. So what I want to talk about builds off of something that Rebecca Greenwood said when she was here, and it actually builds off of a whole bunch of things I've heard since then. And so she had this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, sow a thought and you reap an action, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap a character, sow a character and you reap a destiny. And she talked about this when she was here. Now the way God had given it to me not long before that was similar but a little different, and that was ideas grow into beliefs which lead to actions that have consequences that produce life or death. Either way, it's kind of the same concept. And we can see this um, in uh, an exam one example of this in Scripture is in James chapter 1, where he says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
Now, obviously, that specific scripture is only talking about the negative, but there's other scriptures, and this works both for negative and positive. So the idea here is that you have this very small thing, which is an idea, a thought, a desire, this very small thing, and then through a process, it grows into a belief or an action, and then up into a consequence, a destiny, and eventually life or death. So if we understand this, then we're going to have the ability to use this principle to do good things with it because it's a very powerful principle. So there's, there's good news and there's bad news here. The bad news is oftentimes we start to think about these things once we start to feel them. So at that point, we're in the stage of consequences. We're in the stage of life and death. We're in the stage of uh, our destiny being set. But the problem is when you're in that stage, you've already walked down this path for quite a ways. And there was, I didn't write it down, so I don't have it exactly, but in Proverbs 1, I was just reading this this morning, wisdom is speaking, and wisdom is, says, this is the, the Mike Rush version, says, I told you over and over and over again, and you didn't listen. So now, when you're facing the bad consequences of your stuff, I'm going to laugh at you. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, God is wise, but he's, he's a little nicer than wisdom, but <laughs> apparently. So, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to laugh at you because there's, there's nothing that can be done at this point. Because why is it, and wisdom even says you're going to seek, then you're going to be facing these consequences and you're going to be calling out to me and calling out to me and seeking me and I'm not going to, and you're not going to find me. So why is it that wisdom doesn't have anything to do once we've reached that point in the process? It's because wisdom was way over there in the beginning. We, we bypassed that, and we started going down the road of foolishness a long time ago before we got here. Wisdom is back there. So wisdom is like, okay, you find a way back here to this starting point, and now we can start doing something from here. And so what happens is that we get in these situations, and this is the place where God rescues us, and this is where deliverance ministry, and this is where, you know, restoration and all these deep things that God does, and he helps us. But the key thing is we need to also, as God saves us and rescues us and brings us out, we need to come back and make sure that we've addressed the thought patterns, that we've addressed the habits, that we've addressed these things, because otherwise we're going to go down the exact same road and wind up with the same consequences. So the good news about this is that it's actually a very, if you think about it, it's a very empowering thought. So, so, so let's try this. We're going to try a little exercise here. So I want everybody, um, we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to do something, and you're going to have only one second to do it. And we're going to see how many people can do this in one second, okay? So what I want you to do, no pressure, you got one second, is I want you to think about an apple. Time. Who was able to think about an apple? Wow, we were all able to accomplish that task in one second. Okay, now I'm going to give you another challenge. Okay, I want you to go out and I want you to start a company that is as successful as Apple. Go. Raise your hand when you got it. <laughs> right? So you can, you know, you can believe for it. You can have an idea for it, but you can't do something that fast, right? You can't achieve a destiny in that amount of time with that amount of control under your own power. But you can just decide, I'm going to think this thought and do it just like that. 
You all just did it right now, right? So the idea is there is this thing that is very much under our control that ultimately determines that thing that we can't control or achieve on our own. A couple weeks ago, or I don't remember exactly when it was, um, we were here and, and there was a guy, and I keep forgetting his name, but a guest minister who was in, and he um, spoke a word over me about... Um, I have it written down, so, uh, you know, because I, I, I write it down and I read it, but I don't remember the exact words. But the idea was that um, he mentioned something about patents, that God was going to give me ideas for how to get patents. He mentioned the idea of me moving from working for others to working for myself. And the thing is, so, so that's, he's talking about destiny, right? He's talking about things down the road. But let me tell you, I don't know the first thing about how to get patents. Other than that, it's expensive and hard and a pain in the butt. I don't have any desire or experience to start my own business or go out on my own. None of that. That destiny is something that is utterly unachievable and something that in some ways I'm not even interested in in my own self. But what I can do is I can go over here and I can say that agreed with my spirit. And I don't know how that's going to be accomplished. I have no idea what that looks like. It doesn't make any sense to me. But that agrees with my spirit, so I agree with that. And I'm going to pray into that. And I'm going to say that one way or another, God is in that. And maybe it doesn't look, the, maybe the reason that I'm, I'm struggling with the idea is that I picture it a certain way in my mind. And maybe God needs to deal with that and it's going to look differently. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I agree with that because I believe that that was a true word, of, a word from God. And so these are the things that we can do and we have a great amount of control over that. So, th so the good news is this sort of gives us a shortcut. <laughs> in a way. If I was going to try to accomplish that, that's overwhelming, but I can agree with it and know that that is planting the seed that's going to yield that fruit. Okay, so what I want to focus on the most is how do we effectively leverage this truth in order to be able to bring about life and not death? So I think the principles are actually very simple. So one is um, the way we said it, with because we talked about this in kids' church the, uh, the other day, and the way we said it is you, you need to be mindful of what you're thinking. You need to be thinking about what you're thinking about. Just have an awareness of the thoughts that are going on in your head. And I think sometimes people can get a little caught up here because of the language and because, you know, mindfulness and mindfulness meditation is, is like a big thing that people are doing now. But you got to understand that, you know, God has, has designed the world with certain you know, principles in place. And people who don't know the Lord, who are stumbling about in the dark, they're going to eventually stumble upon some truth and figure it out. So just because the world has some sort of new agey weird concept doesn't mean that it's not, I mean, it's, it's a truth that God can, God will just tell you about if you ask him, but someone's stumbling around in the dark can still find it. So let's not throw out the baby with the bath water and think that, well, we can't do this because that sounds, you know, new agey or something. So it's just this idea of being aware of the thoughts that are in our head. And then, once we become aware of them, we need to bring them into subjection. We need to bring them into, into line with the truth. So just like you have the ability to say, I'm going to think of an apple, well, then you can take that thought and you can bring it into subjection and bring it into alignment with the truth. So this is, um, if we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It gets to the idea of 
our minds are not this sort of out of control thing that, that just sort of go, that we don't have any say on what happens there. We actually do have say on what happens there. We have direct authority and control. You know, you can't control what somebody else thinks or does, but you have this ability to rule in your own mind, and you can take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And the other thing I want to really emphasize here is that so you can do it for yourself, right? You can't do it for somebody else, but there is, there is a place where we have a great area of influence, and that is with our kids. So with kids, this part of the process of ideas and beliefs and forming habits, this happens really fast and really effectively. And we have a great deal of influence on what happens here. And this is why it's so important that if you're here and, and, you've, and you're, you're, you're living in either good or bad consequences, and you're looking back over the things that you went through here, you've got to pass that on to your children. Because the problem I've seen too many people who have done all the right things, and they just haven't taken the time to teach it to their children, and then the children don't follow. I mean, you can learn a lot through seeing it, but man, talk to them. I mean, it's not that hard to add a little talking on top of it. You know, and people, you know, I have, this is, um, if, I, uh, if I were to write the book of, of Proverbs, it would only have like three in it, uh, because that's all I've got. But one of them is, um, you know, it's good to learn from your mistakes, but it's way better to learn from somebody else's. I want my kids to learn from every single mistake I've ever made. You know, now there's a few I haven't told them about yet. I think they should be a little older before they learn, but they know a lot of my mistakes. And I just tell them because I'm like, the reason we tell you this stuff is because I made that mistake and this is what it did. And I don't want you to go through that. It's just that simple. And, you know, you look at it and you're like, well, <laughs> I don't want to go through that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I'd, I'd rather not go through that mess. The thing is, the world is trying to influence us, all of us, but I think it's especially effective with kids through this process of normalization. It's what I call the back door, and I've been talking to the kids about the back door. The idea is we're just going to show you something over and over and over again until you just accept it, right? We're just going to keep bringing it in, and we're not going to come to you and say, hey, you know, I... I really want you to learn this thing, and I'm going to tell you. See, that's the way that God comes to us, and that's the way that we work. If you think about it from the perspective of the brain, it's through this front part of the brain where all the reasoning happens. But the world and the enemy try to come in through the back part, which is where all the emotions and the, and the stress and the, um, what do you call it, the, uh, you know, like knee-jerk reactions and all that kind of stuff, that all happens back here. And the enemy tries to come in through that back door. But the thing of it is that, you know, kids' ability to soak these things up and to, and to learn at that age what normal is, we can also use that for good purposes by simply teaching them, by simply sharing these things. You know, uh, let me give you two examples. So the world is working very hard to teach our kids how normal it is for a boy to have a boyfriend, right? Girl to have a girlfriend. Now, I'm not talking about a friend who happens to be a boy friend who happens to be a girl. But what I see when I go in kids' church is I see a bunch of kids who think it's not at all weird to hear something from God and share it with somebody else. They don't think that's weird at all. If we tell them, you know, we're going to pray for these people, tell me what you think God is saying, they'll just do it. Because they've learned it through us as parents, through us, you know, in, in the kids' church. And to them, that's just normal. 
Do you have any idea how hard it was for me as an adult to get that God would speak to me? Because I didn't learn that as a kid. How long did I have to go through struggling with this idea of the prophetic and thinking, boy, that's kind of weird. I just don't know if that's biblical. I got to look this up and see. And boy, I, this just seems kind of strange. And I don't know. And all this stuff and struggle, 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 struggle. But the kids are just like, oh, you can hear from God. Okay. Well, let me just listen. Well, here's what he told me. And you're like, you just did it. It took me so much struggle, and I'm on my knees, and I'm saying, God, I just want to hear your voice. I just want to hear, and, and, I, and I want it to really be you, and I, I'm, uh, okay, I heard something, but oh, boy, was that really you? Okay, now I need you to convince me that it was you, and we do all this stuff, and the kids are like, oh, you can just listen? Okay. Well, here's what God said, and you're like, that is so on point. So we can use this by simply teaching our kids, you know, and not giving into this idea. I mean, yes, we're going to do the best we can in kids' church, but we're only going to get to some stuff. I mean, you got to do teaching at home. <laughs> you know, we're not going to cover it in kids' church. We're not going to cover it all in school. They're really going to learn from you. And the good news is they soak it up so easily that you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a master's in education to do this. You just got to share stuff. Okay. That's enough for that soapbox, but I think it was a good one. Um, so how do we become aware of what we're thinking? Again, the world says you should practice meditation, but what are the real keys that will allow us to become aware of the thoughts that are going on in our mind? I think the problem is, at least to me, the thought of always being aware of what I'm thinking so that I can bring it into subjection is really overwhelming. Like, so you mean I'm gonna leave here and I'm gonna be like, okay, bye everybody, I'm walking to the car. Okay, what am I thinking? I just thought, I'm hungry. Okay, good, wait, is that okay? Is it okay for me to be hungry? Okay, I think it is. Yeah, I'm gonna go eat. Okay, now what am I thinking? It's hot out here. Wait, is it okay for me to feel hot? Maybe I need to have faith that I'm not hot. This is not the kind of thing that we're talking about doing here, right? You need, the key thing is, at least the key that God gave me, maybe there are others, are the idea of prompts. That there has to be something that prompts you to say, hey, I need to stop and think, what is going on here? So I have three that God gave me. I'm sure there's others, probably plenty of others, but I'm going to share these prompts. So the first prompt is reading something in Scripture you don't understand or that doesn't make sense. That is the first prompt that there is something in your mind that either it's something good that God is trying to put in or something bad that God is trying to take out. I'm going to give you an example. So we, um, I've been going through a season in life where for some reason I have no desire to read scripture. I don't know why, it's just not there. And it's like pulling teeth to get myself to do it. And a couple weeks ago, Clay said we need to fast. We need to have a fast for identity. And so it, immediately God showed me exactly what I should fast from, and I started doing that. And within two days, my desire to read scripture came back overnight. And I was like, this is awesome. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm back in scripture, and I'm reading um, Job because I was going through a, uh, a, you know, a, a reading plan, and that's where it had me. And I feel like you know, I'm supposed to actually do this. But the, thing, the problem with this is that I really don't enjoy the book of Job. I don't know who in here does enjoy the book of Job, 
Uh, uh, does anybody, by the way? <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> That's not surprising, but anyways. <laughs> so um, so I, I really just don't enjoy the book of Job. It's, it's, you know, you look at it, and it's like 40 chapters of people just arguing. And I can't handle people arguing. It's why I don't watch TV. I don't watch debates. I don't read, you know, stuff online. I don't go on Facebook because it's just a bunch of people arguing. That's all it is. And I feel like, man, if I wanted this, I could just go to Facebook. I don't need to go to Job. But I'm like, th there's got to be, but, uh, but I'm, I'm in Job, okay? And so, um, and, and I said to God, I said, I don't get this book. I really don't. So I've heard people say that it's about the problem of evil, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? And it's supposed to explain it. But I'm like, it doesn't explain it. There's no explanation in Job as to why this happened. Like Job is telling God he wants an explanation, and God, is, and God spends two chapters telling him, you don't know anything, Job. And that's it. He doesn't answer it. He doesn't answer it. I'm like, if that's what it's about, then it, it misses the mark. So Job's not about, I, I really don't think, you know, there may be some hints and some nuggets in there, but I don't think that's the core of what Job is about. And the thing I could never understand is why when God finally speaks, he spends like two, three chapters, whatever it is, reading Job the riot act. I mean, he just lays the smack down on Job. And then he immediately turns to the friends and says, you didn't say the right stuff about me like Job did. Has anybody else ever thought that was strange? Like, do you ever, like, have you ever had your kids do something so crazy that you just go off on them, and then you're like, but you were right. <laughs> right? I mean, that's crazy. And so I just ask God, I'm like, okay, if I'm in Job, I really want to understand what's going on here. And I've done this before. This isn't the first time I've read Job. And he showed me, he, he said, so first he showed me that the things that the, the friends were saying, of course we know the friends' argument, right? The friends' argument is you must have done something wrong because God doesn't do bad things to good people. He does bad things to wicked people. So obviously you did something wrong. If you'll just fess up, God will make it all better. And the key thing, though, that God showed me is what was the first thing that Job always said in reply? I don't know if anybody else has ever noticed this. I never had before in all the times I read it. So Job doesn't immediately come back and say, I didn't do anything wrong. He does say that, but it's never the first thing he says. The first thing he says is always, y'all are a bunch of jerks. And that's basically what he says. Some friends you are, you know, here you're kicking a man while he's down. You're taking advantage of my situation. He goes to the friends and he says, y'all are being a bunch of jerks. And then when he starts to talk about God, the interesting thing is that he doesn't do what I've seen so many people do. What do people do when things get bad and they prayed and the prayer didn't get answered and they ask God for this and God didn't come through for them and all that kind of stuff? They say, well, I guess this whole thing just isn't working. I'm out, right? I'm out. But what does Job does? He says, okay, this whole thing isn't working. God isn't doing right, to, God isn't doing right by me, so I want to see him face to face and tell him about it. Notice that difference. There's actually something very profound in that difference. The idea that I mean, what do we do? If someone's doing wrong by you, you want to just be like, well, fine, I'm done. But that's not what Job did. So he looks at his friends and he's saying, you are not being right in relationship with me right now because you are hurting me and this isn't cool. And then he goes to God and says, you aren't treating me right and I want to get close to you and talk to you about it. Now, obviously, Job repents. You know, his accusation of God was not well-founded, and that's not what God was, was saying. God wasn't saying, oh, you're right, I was doing wrong, my bad. That isn't what God was saying, right? 
But the thing is, God loved Job, and he saw someone who was continuing to press into relationship with him. Job never walked away. He never walked away from God. He continued to press in, even when he felt like God was wronging him. I mean, who presses into someone when they are convinced that that person is doing wrong by them? But that's what Job did. And because of that, God said that he said what was right about him. See, God could see past all that stuff, and he could see that peace in Job, and he could connect with him. So the, the point of all this is, that was something that there was this peace in Scripture that I could never understand that always bothered me. I was like, man, I just don't get this. And it just so happened that it was in this past couple of weeks that I got that breakthrough. But the point is, that has allowed me to understand something that I never understood before. That has allowed me to get an idea of truth in me that can produce life that wasn't there before. But God was able to do that, and the prompt was me seeing that there's something in Scripture that doesn't make any sense to me. Next up are the uh, head coverings, but we'll get there. So... Um, the key thing with this is that continue to press in, don't give up, and understand that it could be that you won't get it this time. You might have to circle the mountain, and it might be the next time you get to it, or it might be the time after that. God knows when you're going to be ready, but keep believing for it, keep pressing in for it, and don't back away when there's something in Scripture you don't understand. Okay, prompt number two is being challenged in community. So this is, somebody says something, maybe on the mic up here, maybe it's a friend of yours, it says something and it just totally hits you the wrong way. And you're like, I don't like that at all. I really don't like that at all. That, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't want to hear that. This is a prompt. Now it doesn't mean that that person is right and you're wrong. It doesn't mean that necessarily, but it's a prompt that you need to start looking and saying, what am I thinking? Why does this bother me? You need to start talking to God about it and saying, you know, what is this? What is going on? Why does this affect me so much? Because I think the problem is we can come here and we can take the things that people say that grate against our lifestyle and we can say, I'm just going to block that out and move along with the rest of the things. After all, I mean, people stand up here and preach for, what, a half hour, an hour, something like that. I mean, you can ignore five, ten minutes of it and still have all kinds of stuff, right? So... You know, we can hear these things and we just immediately block them out and we just move on. And I think what we need to do is when, when there's that grating, I mean, that's what iron sharpens iron means, right? That God didn't just put that in the Bible so we would have something to talk about at men's conferences. It actually means something, right? And, and this is this idea of there's a grating that knocks off the rough edges. And so sometimes it could be that the reason that the thing that that person says bothers you so much is it could be because there's a lie that you're believing that it rubs up against. It could be that there's a habit in your life that God is trying to call out. And you, you can't just assume it's a certain thing, but you need to look and become mindful of what's going on. Is there something that the enemy has snuck in through the back door that I've just accepted? Is there a lie that I've just accepted? It's being willing to be challenged through community. I remember when um, Anthony Chapman was here several years ago, and he preached a sermon, something about um, the reluctant God. And so the way he put it was, he said that God was reluctant to be God. 
He never wanted to be God. He only ever wanted to be our father. And he only became God because we wanted him to be God. And I was like, I don't think that's theologically sound. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that it is totally theologically sound, but I think that he was using extreme language to get us to shift a paradigm. Or at least that's what God was doing in me. I don't know what God was doing in anybody else, but that it just stuck with me and it bothered me. And I was like, God, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? And through that process, God did such a change in me that I actually began to see God as my father for the first time. Because I had always known he was my father, but I had never seen him as my father. And that moment and me wrestling with how bad it felt. Because it, it wasn't because, I mean, sometimes people give something and you're like, oh, revelation! And it's amazing. And that's good. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that's bad. But the thing is, so, so go with that. But also don't ignore it when it feels yucky. Because it could be that God is trying to, to grate this thing off. And God used that. And that was a, f a moment of a fundamental shifting where my actual, like, the actual theology that I lived out in my life, as in the way I actually saw the world and interacted with God, finally lined up with something that previously I had only intellectually known to be true. And I view that as one of the big shit. You know, if I looked over my life and I said, the ten biggest things that happened in my life to develop me as a person, that one would make the list. And it all started with someone saying something that I thought was crazy and theologically unsound. But it was the wrestling with God that, was allow that allowed that to come to the point where it produced fruit. And the final one that, that I'm not going to dwell on for too long, because I think we get this one already, is just the idea of checks from Holy Spirit. That there are times where Holy Spirit just said, you know, you just... You just have that thing inside you where like, I don't know what it is, but it's just not, it's just not, I just can't just go on. Something's here. I, d I don't know what it is. And it isn't always a negative check. Sometimes it's just a pay attention, listen up. And it's just God wanting to speak to you. And I think we understand that one, but I also just don't want us to forget it. You know, those little things, it doesn't, you know, maybe you, you aren't sure, but it doesn't hurt to go to God and say, God, was that you? Are you trying to tell me something right now? Because he'll say, no, no, it's fine. Go about your business. You're good. You know, he can tell us that. We can stop and we can ask him and he can be honest with us. The other thing that'll happen with being challenged in community is that you will find passions that are buried inside of you. So sometimes what will happen is that somebody will say something and it'll feel yucky and it'll feel yucky because they're wrong. But it feels incredibly yucky. In fact, it can make you angry. And the reason it makes you angry is that the lie that that person is believing, you have a passion to see that torn down. You have a passion to see that torn down. And so that person can say all kinds of crazy, and you're just like, oh, man, you're confused, you're confused, you're confused. And then they hit on that one thing that is that enemy of yours, and you're like, oh, I can't believe you just said that. And, you know, I've had these things happen where people say stuff, and I'm like, God, I've heard way crazier things than that, but this one just really, really, really bothers me. And God says, that's because I've put a passion in you in this area. I have given you a calling in this area to tear this thing down. One that's very relevant to this area is all the times people talk about 
faith versus reason. They talk about, you know, this, this dichotomy between faith versus reason. And every time I hear that stuff, I just get so angry. I think part of it is because I'm a person who has faith and reason. And you're telling me I can't be both of those things. You're trying to rip me in half. You're trying to take all the people that I work with who constantly use reason every day of their life and tell them that they don't qualify for faith because they're reasonable. Don't take my people, these people that I care about, and tell them that they can't come to God just because they use their brain. That one just makes me so angry when I hear it. And I think the problem is we start to believe this ourselves, and this is one of the barriers that we face to even applying these principles. Because we think, well, if I just stop and think about what I'm thinking about and, and try to think it through and say, does it make sense? You know, that's all, that's like, that's just reason, that's carnal, that's whatever. No, it's not. These two things go together, and they're very important. In Isaiah 118, God says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, God is showing us here how simple reason can be. I think sometimes we think this is the realm of theologians and philosophers and great intellectuals. God is like, it's this simple. Okay, if you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. He just makes a very simple, reasonable argument. He doesn't even, you know, there are places where God appeals to us in different ways. And here he's saying, okay, in Isaiah 118, this is a time for me to appeal to your intellect. Let's make it really simple. This is the same thing that happened with the prodigal son, right? What was the idea that sowed the seed for the restoration of the prodigal son? I'm hungry right? I'm hungry, and my, my father's servants have food. That was the idea. It, it wasn't something super deep, right? And then he thought about it, and he used reason, and I believe Holy Spirit was helping him through that process, because that's what he does. He's our helper. And although, you know, in scripture it's just written, he said, um, you know, uh, I don't have the, the whole thing memorized, but he says, you know, I'm hungry. My father's servants have enough to eat. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, I'm sorry I've sinned, and I don't deserve anything, but if I could just be one of your servants, something along those lines, right? So he plans this whole thing out. It's like three verses. But I personally don't believe that it came on him as fast as it comes on us when we read it. We can just read right through it, but I think it developed in him over a process of time. I think he was hungry for several days before he started to think, you know, this isn't working, started with, I'm hungry, then it went to, this isn't working. Something's got to change. And then somewhere along the way, he thought, you know, I know I can't go home, because, I mean, that's not going to work. But I do remember that the servants who were working for my father, they had food. And then he started thinking about it some more, and he was thinking, well, you know, maybe, just maybe I could find a way to become one of them. And somewhere along the, that thought process, it became solidified into a belief, because it, it wasn't something that he could just try. He couldn't just text his dad and say, hey, can I come home, right? He had to journey back. He had to make up his mind and go through this thing. And he made that journey, and because of that, he found complete restoration. But it started with a, a seed of some very simple ideas. 
And through the process of applying reason to those ideas, he came to a godly conclusion. Because those ideas were on point. There is a lot of scripture that talks about these concepts. And I wrote them down, but I didn't wind up going through a lot of them. I know I went through some of them. So I want to talk about one, again, I had several, several examples of life-giving and death-bringing ideas that I think are common. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I may just go through a couple. So Luke 16.10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And this is, he goes on at the end of this to say, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. I think we have an idea that sometimes comes into our mind that we don't have to actively work to manage our finances. We can get the idea that this is something that God is just going to take care of and that all I need to do to manage my finances is to tithe and give offerings and give first fruits. And you should tithe and you should give offerings and you should give first fruits and that's a part of managing your money. But if you think about it, um, you know, if, if we were to look at our financial scenario and run the numbers, tithes and offerings and first fruits for most of us is probably somewhere between 10 and 25% of the money that passes through our hands. So what you're really saying, if you're saying that's my money management plan, is you're saying that for 75 to 90% of my money, I have no plan. And for that 10 to 25%, I have one. It says right here that if we cannot be faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that we cannot be entrusted with true riches. It is not unspiritual to manage your finances. And that may sound obvious, but I think what can happen is that God has, we have so many testimonies of miraculous things that God has done through giving. I have them as well. And sometimes we forget that there's another 75 to 90 percent over here that God is watching us to see what we're going to do with it. And the reason I wanted to bring this one up specifically is if we're talking about wealth transfer next week, one of the deepest things on my heart is that I want to see the people of God enter into a place where they can manage the wealth. Because the best case scenario, if you can't manage the wealth, is God won't include you in the wealth transfer. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is he transfers the wealth to you and you lose it. I don't want to be in that position, and I don't want any of us to be in that position. We need to learn to manage this. The next minister or event or prayer session is going to solve all my problems. Paul says to the Philippians, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now so much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He does not say, just as you obeyed in my presence, hang on, it's going to be awesome when I get back to you next time because I'm Paul and I'm the bomb, right? He doesn't say that. 
God wants to be working in us at all times and not waiting for that next event, not waiting for that next minister. This is the reason why things like the journey are so effective because it is a working out of the salvation with an active engagement from you. When I look in my life, there are many things, like let's take the Anthony Chapman example. So he got up here and preached this, and that, that was huge, but it didn't bear fruit by itself. It bore fruit because I went to God and was like, what is this crazy thing that this guy said, and worked that thing out between me and God. And when I look over my life and look at every single place in my life where there has been breakthrough, yes, there has often been a place where someone spoke truth, someone spoke revelation, there's often community involved in that process, but it's only worked through a process of walking it out, and we need to be willing to walk these things out. Okay, so I want to finish with something that I have to admit, I don't have a 100% picture how this is supposed to work, but I feel like it is. So the last idea that I want to talk about is this idea of clergy versus laity. And this is talked about a lot here, the idea that there's a mindset of clergy and laity, and, and there's this thing about, I haven't studied it out well enough to say it, but you know, the laity, it comes from this word meaning stupid or something like that. So this concept is based on the idea that you know, the laity are just kind of stupid and they don't, you know, it, it's, this, it, it's a very, um, it's not a very life-giving idea. And so you know, we're very much here about breaking down this clergy versus laity mindset and have a, having a mindset of we're all kings and priests. Right, We're all seated in heavenly places. It's for all of us to rule and reign and minister and do all these things. But I think the problem is, like I said, the enemy comes in through the back door. And, and just like Dee said, these ideas hide. These lies hide. And sometimes we can't recognize them. And God gave me this thing, and I said, God, how? Well, I didn't say this to him. He said it to me. He said, the way you can tell if you have a laity mindset is that you think if you left, it wouldn't make any difference. And I feel like God showed me that there are some of us who have this mindset that's been hiding and that a lot of these things that were talked about today are for you, specifically, to come to a place where you can begin to see victory in your life. So what I want to do is I just want to ask if there's anybody who you feel a tug on your heart of conviction about this laity mindset, that you feel that, you know, if I wasn't here, it wouldn't make a difference, or even if you don't, let's say you didn't think that. Let's say when you answered that question in the beginning, you thought of a whole bunch of things, but you just feel like God is tugging your heart. I want to invite people to come forward and get prayer. And I know this is maybe a little bit more of a perhaps kind of a vulnerable altar call <laughs> that we usually give. I understand that. And so I understand that I'm asking for something pretty bold, and I get that. And what I'd like to do is, if, if there's anybody who feels that tug and wants to come up, is that I want some of the, this is just the way that God showed it to me, is that some of the people who were inducted as new shareholders a couple of weeks ago, I'd like you to, to pray for them. So um, I want to close with that, and I just want to invite up, if there's anybody who feels a, a tug on your heart or a conviction about this sort of laity mindset, um, if you would come up, and then we'll pray for you. And with that, we'll be able to close out.
And could we have, um, you know, again, just as God is speaking to you, if you're, um, you know, one of the people, if any of those of you who just became shareholders in this last, uh, what was it, two weeks ago, um, you know, if you want to come up, I would encourage you to come up and pray uh, for these people who are up here. And, and keep in mind that it's not, you're not anybody's Holy Spirit. So I'm not even asking you to deliver to them this huge life-changing word, but just stand alongside them and pray. Even if it's silent, I invite you up. And as they come also, if there are, you know, any of the leaders who have a, who want to come up and pray, or the prayer team, please do that. Let's just pray for everyone standing right here. And some of you might be sitting because you don't want to come up. That's fine too. Father, I pray for a hovering of the Holy Spirit upon everyone standing here. And upon those who are sitting as well, O oh God, I pray for thy mercy and thy salvation to come upon every individual who feels inferior, who feels confused. Father, I pray that the tongues of fire will sit upon us this morning, that you will put a new crown upon their heads, that crown of acceptance in the beloved, that crown of love, the crown of worth, that they are worthy, they are esteemed, they are wanted, they are valued. Jesus, remove every yoke of the enemy, O oh God, Father. Remove every yoke of the enemy. Let it be broken off this morning. Spirit of God, have your way. Hover over. Bring all the chaos into order, O oh God. Jesus. As we As we all come, casting off our crowns, would you hear our cry? We want to see you
Oh 